Okay, before I start my message today, I wanted to say thank you very much to Rita Clank and Kim Taylor for organizing Guess Who's Coming to Dinner last night. Did you guys have fun with that? That was great. So fun. I think uh, when the PowerPoint gets up there, there's a picture of a few pictures that people sent in. We had a great time at our house. Uh, it's always a fun surprise, and it's just, it's really interesting how, what, again, sitting down for a meal, breaking bread with people, how that breaks down barriers, whether it's just a, a, a thin, layer, uh, thin barrier of just kind of general social awkwardness, or a larger barrier of, um, well, you can think of larger barriers socially, but anyways. So yeah, it was really, really great. Uh, we had a lot of fun. Our kids get especially excited when we invite people over, because not so much as the hospitality part, but more because they know that when we have people over, they get dessert. So <laughs> they're just so pumped, and they just, the two littlest eat as quickly as they can, and then immediately ask for dessert, and then we tell them no, and then you start to have to manage expectations and emotions for like the next 30 minutes, but anyways, it was super, super great, and thanks to... Thank you again, Kim and uh, Rita, for taking leadership in that. Also, Easter is very early this year. Um, last Sunday of March is Easter, and I met with a few of the artists in our community, and one of the things that I felt constrained to do from the pulpit, so to speak, on Sundays, I want to invite any visual artists in our community or artists who write, whether it's songs or poetry, to challenge yourselves over these next few weeks to just steep in a theme of the resurrection. And what I'd like to do is, um, in the weeks preceding Easter, for six or eight weeks, I would love it if there was a handful of people, I, well, actually, I'd love it if there's more than that, who'd be willing to display some kind of art or writing, poem, song lyrics. We're going to put it on this wall. Uh, I was deeply affected by a quote that I heard a few years ago from N.T. Wright, who said he found in his Anglican tradition it was so interesting that what was emphasized leading up to Easter in the Lenten season was to give up something. But when we got to Easter, he never was challenged to start something or to generate something or to create something new. And so he said he's trying to work within his um, circle of influence to make Easter a season where we're bringing new life into focus. And challenging ourselves, like Colleen said, to, to, to stretch ourselves beyond what we assume our own capacities are. And so I'd love this wall over the weeks uh, unfolding and bursting out from Easter be full of art. And again, I'm, I'm really, that, that's to all ages, that's to all skill levels. Uh, this is, is going to be, a, for the season of Easter, this is going to be a community wall where we're just sharing and encouraging one another with, this is kind of the new song that God has put in my heart. This is the new poem. This is the new drawing. This is the new painting. And so please don't hesitate because you're not good enough or you're not as good as this person or whatever hesitancies are in your mind. Just please put those to death and, and take this as a challenge over these next three or four weeks to just pray through a theme and say, God, put something on my heart and then run with it. Sound good? Willing to at least experiment with trying with that and pushing yourselves? Okay, today we are um, celebrating our place within our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, broadly speaking, but specifically the Evangelical Ch Covenant Church of Canada. Now, I know in saying that, there's probably a spectrum of reactions 
most of which would lean towards, do we really want to spend a Sunday celebrating our denomination? Like, aren't denominations kind of passe? Um, you know, you, I, the more I read, uh, certainly in the last 10 or 15 years, there's been so much doom and gloom about the future of Christian denominations in the landscape of North America. More and more people seeing them as outmoded, outdated, irrelevant. And that's why I think Sundays like this are just increasingly important. I'm actually really, really grateful for denominations, not all in any denomination, but godly, um, Christ-exalting denominations are, they, they warm my heart and are a huge encouragement to me. Because increasingly in our culture, there is a temptation and there is an idea that gets uh, kind of meted out in, in, in subtle and not so subtle ways that the Christian life is something that we can do on our own. Or that the Christian life is something that we can do with a, a small constellation of people who, who get it like us or who think like us. Um, and I'm really grateful for the presence of denominations which say, maybe you have found something new and interesting, but there's an entire history here of Christians who have found a way to live out their faith centered around certain convictions that has brought life and vibrancy and the gospel to millions of people. But I understand that there is a, a reticence to embrace denominationalism. I was thinking about it, and I kind of feel like for a lot of people, denominations are like, we think of denominations like we think about our, or how we thought about our parents, maybe some of you currently, <laughs> how you think about your parents when you're a teenager. That's why I think a lot of people in the cultural landscape think about denominations. They're not really cool. Um, they don't really have any street cred. They don't appear to be particularly relevant. Your life kind of just goes on, whether or not they're going to and fro. You know they do stuff, they work, they have responsibilities, but it doesn't really seem to connect to your experience on the ground level. They're very, very easy to take for granted. When you're young, there's even stages where you're kind of tempted to think your life would be better without them that they, they uh, just by their sheer presence alone, they constrain you and restrict you from moving into the kind of life that you know you want, you know you need. Denominations often, we often look at denominations as these monolithic organizations that are out of touch with reality. And like our parents, when we were young and immature, we, we see what they're choosing to prioritize, and it just seems dumb. It's not what we would prioritize. It's not what we would give our time and energy to. It seems out of step with people who get it, who know actually how to build towards the future and how to take hold of a real and vibrant Christian faith. But as you mature into adulthood, in many ways, you know, you come to, realize, uh, come to rely on your parents in new and deeper ways and you come to appreciate your parents in new and deeper ways, n none of us had perfect parents. Um, but I have heard it said, you know, your parents are fools when you're a teenager, but they're geniuses when you're 30. And I, I think that that's a general trend that a lot of us can recognize and say, I was pretty dismissive of my parents early on in my life 
until especially I had to weather the storms of life. And I had to walk through sustained challenge and suffering for the first time in my life. Then I understood and had a deeper appreciation for my parents. And you begin to see how you have needed your parents more than you realize at every single stage of development, and especially when you fell on hard times. There's a, a journalist, Ed Stetzer, who writes for Christianity Today, and he did a, a, a big uh, survey of denominations, and he was really wrestling through this question of, like, are denominations necessary? Um, you know, f- 100 years from now, are there going to be Christian denominations, or are they just a relic of the past? And he said one of the huge strengths of denominations is that denominations and their leaders, they have weathered a ton of storms. And that's not to say that their member churches are always going to survive, but it's more likely that they will. And he said, for our youth-obsessed evangelicalism, our infantile kind of tween mentality that, like, we don't need, we don't need help, we, we get it, we, we'll figure out our own way forward. He said, this is a hard truth to accept. But where... A lot of people expect to see age and decay and complete obsolescence, uselessness, irrelevance in denominations. His experience is that you're actually more likely to find longevity and maturity and wisdom. Now, for some people, they're going to push back on that. Some people have very, very negative experiences within denominations. So they're going to say longevity, yeah, sure, this has been around for a long time. But wisdom or maturity, that hasn't been my experience. And I like what Ed Stetzer says again in this article. He says, I completely admit that denominations are riddled with weak, ineffective, and sometimes arrogant leadership. That denominations are prone to navel-gazing and often move more slowly than they should. But these aspects are products of human fallibility and sin. See, every time churches work together, ego, failure, and inefficiency will arise. It's inevitable. And when churches don't work together, ego, failure, and inefficiency will still arise. Because ultimately, the problems that we see with denominations aren't because of the fact that it's a denomination. It's a fact that it involves people. And so whether churches are working independently or with denominations, there's always going to be brokenness. There's always going to be weakness. There's always going to be failure. Because people, he writes, and not denominations are the source. So I'm actually a really big fan of denominations. Again, godly ones that genuinely are seeking to honor God and pursue his kingdom. Not because they're perfect, but because they're some of the best places through which we can give and serve. Through denomination, uh, denominations are kind of like a, a musical amplifier. They can take our gifts individually and as churches, our gifts and talents and experiences, and they can amplify them to an influence that's greater than you could leverage just in your own might and in your own power. Through a denomination, you can provide resources to people that you will never meet, like in Ecuador. You can reach places you will never go, like the Congo. You can preach the gospel to lost soul, souls who you would never have the opportunity to personally reach out to. And so we find that it's in and through denominations, good godly ones, that we can give of ourselves in ways that have a a multiplying effect and a multiplying influence. I was reminded as I was thinking about this message about a text in Jeremiah 
when God's people face this crossroads, when they're trying to figure out the way forward, how they should progress as the people of God, God speaks to them through the prophet Jeremiah, and in verse 16 of chapter 6, it says, This is what the Lord says, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. And when I kind of deconstructed that passage, especially this, this, this final line where you're like, oh, that sounds great. But then God says to Israel, but you said we won't walk in it. We know the ancient path. We know the good way. We're just, we know better. We're not going to walk it, walk, walk down that path. And I thought, isn't that interesting? You fast forward all these thousands of years and we still dismiss ancient things as old things and old things as irrelevant things, and irrelevant things as things, or, and, and old things as not just irrelevant, but really useless. Something to be jettisoned completely, because we, especially in our culture, our culture has, of any culture in, in human history, has been more influenced by the idea that new is better and new equals improved. And so there's so many seductions at every turn in our lives, generally speaking, but even as Christians, to presume, oh, the new book, the new teaching, the new church, the new pattern, the new practice, the new thing, that is going to be the key. And what's old just needs to be left to the dustbins of history. And yet God says, when you stand at these critical junction points in your life, the, question you should, the, the path you shouldn't be seeking is the new path. is isn't novelty. That's very rarely going to be a path of genuine spiritual vibrancy moving forward. It's going to be the ancient path. See, spiritually, there isn't a lot that's new under the sun. Many denominations stand as testimonies to ancient paths that millions of Christians within them have used to um, go deeper into the gospel, spread the gospel, testify to the gospel, and establish the kingdom in a way that's leading to lives being transformed. Not just for a moment, not just for a year, but over generations. Now, denominations are not the kingdom of God. But I really believe that healthy denominations can be conduits of the kingdom. That God's kingdom can come in, in a unique and powerful way through the influence of denominations. Because denominations pull us out of our own self-absorption and our own self-centeredness. And they help us, they help us to make sure that we're situating ourselves within a larger story of the, of the denomination, which ideally is part of a larger story of the kingdom of God. Let me share with you very briefly the kind of the history and the story of the Evangelical Covenant Church. The Evangelical Covenant Church is now one of the fastest growing multi-ethnic denominations in North America. A third, statistically, most multi-ethnic denomination in the United States. It was started in 1885 by Swedish immigrants who valued the Bible as the word of God, the gift of God's grace, and were driven by a passion to not just connect people to the belief system of Christianity, but were driven, was, they were driven by a passion to connect people to the born-again, new life, resurrection life that is possible in and through an encounter with Jesus. They believed strongly in the importance of practically living out the Christian faith, of not just collecting ideas and showing up to church, but church was a means to a greater end, and that was the mission of God. The early covenanters were called mission friends. 
they understood their primary focus to be in mission, to be going into their spheres of influence, the home, work, overseas missions, as a way to spread the gospel, to share the good news, but not just to share the good news with, um, with, their, with their mouths, but to share it with their lives and with their action. The Evangelical Covenant Church has historically focused on four ministry priorities. And if something didn't fit into this grid, these priorities, the Evangelical Covenant Church has kind of said, that's great, that's not for us. These are the things that we're going to focus on so that um, our denomination as a conduit of the kingdom will be established in each successive generation moving forward. The first is to make and deepen disciples. The second is to start and strengthen churches. The third is to develop leaders. And the fourth is to love mercy and to do justice. And it's through these ministry priorities that the Evangelical Covenant Church has really tried to form a people and nurture communities that are deeply committed to Jesus and are passionately engaged in Christ's mission to the world. And, and the purpose of what I'm going to talk about next, which is called these covenant affirmations, was to say these are the values and the priorities that regardless of the unique um, culture and context of your covenant church, these are the values and priorities that we want to become the lifeblood of every single covenanter. These covenant affirmations are the essential beliefs, and they sum up the guiding principles and values that for over a, uh, over 100 years, the covenant church has said, this is what is important to us, and we think this is distinctive amongst the Christian landscape of denominations. In the, in the 30s and 40s in the covenant church, there was a big question. The question was, is there a need for our denomination? Not our denomination is bad, but in the landscape of America, there was tons of evangelical denominations. What makes the covenant different? Like, why don't we just go join the Baptists? Or why don't we just go merge with the Presbyterians or uh, the free evangelical church? Why do we need to be distinct? And they ultimately landed on these affirmations as a way to say, yes, this particular constellation and vision for what it looks like to be a gospel people is actually incredibly unique. For some of these, these will be old hat. But I want to challenge those of you who might receive these and think, oh, this is like phenomenal mission statement stuff. I don't know. This is too corporate. When you study covenant history, you understand that at no point in the covenant's denominational uh, strategy and plan were they interested in building some kind of denomination as a means to an end. One of the things that bleeds out of all the historical uh, articles and lectures and sermons that I listened to for the Covenant History course is the denomination is great because it allows us to get like-minded Christians together to pursue this mission, these affirmations. Because if we pursue these affirmations and we live this out even imperfectly, we're going to see God's kingdom come. The first affirmation is that Covenanter said, we affirm the centrality of the word of God. Full stop, that's it. We affirm the centrality of the word of God. The Bible is the only perfect rule for faith and for doctrine or right understanding of who God is and how we're supposed to live and conduct. And the power of God's word should direct the church and the life of every Christian. And what was interesting and distinctive about the covenant with this affirmation is that it said very, very little about the word of God. It didn't go down what it felt was an unproductive rabbit hole of trying to parse out every single um, uh, 
precise minutia of church doctrine. It also, in general, rejected being a creedal denomination where there was some kind of um, creedal confession that says this is what you believe and and all these points about to to be a covenanter like there was in the Presbyterian or Lutheran uh, church or in many churches today. Salvation Army would be another one where they have a kind of a creedal-based entrance into this is what we center our beliefs on. Covenanters were, I think, really, really courageous in saying um, we just really want to put the Bible front and center and to be looking at Jesus and how to live our lives. Because they said, what we have seen over the history of, especially the Reformation, the more you go in to those doctrinal distinctives, that rabbit hole becomes a bit of a black hole. And you lose the larger picture of you are meant to be in mission for the, for the glory and purposes of God, and yet you have, you know, the reformed equivalent of theologians in a room trying to figure out, well, how big are angels? How many could dance on the head of a pin? And the covenanter said, we don't have time for that. We should be in mission bringing the love of Jesus to bear on people's lives. So we believe that the Bible should be our rule for faith, and then let's just move forward in mission. We're not going to get bogged down with doctrinal distinctions. distinctions. And this is really important in the 1930s. In the 1930s, a movement called fundamentalism emerged. And fundamentalism was a reaction to liberalism, which, uh, biblical liberalism, which essentially said that the Bible's not really an inspired book. It's a great work of human achievement. Um, It's worthy of study, but it's not authoritative over one's life. So we can kind of begin breaking it down and, and, and looking at it from a human perspective. Fundamentalism reared up and said, absolutely not. The Bible's authoritative. Every letter is completely true. We are to understand it literally. That's what it means to have respect for the Bible. And, f- and fundamentalist leaders said, you actually can't call yourself an evangelical Christian unless you adhere to a fundamentalist stance regarding Scripture. Plain reading of Scripture. Scripture means what it says. says what it means. Obey it in all things. Never ask questions. There it is. The covenant was one of the early denominations that rejected both of those stances. They rejected liberalism because they said, no, the Bible is not from man, it is from God. Men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, but this is the word of God. This is authoritative, this is binding. But the covenant pushed back on fundamentalism, which was essentially creating a new creed. In order to be a true Christian, a real Christian, yes, you have to believe the Bible is authoritative, but you also have to believe these things. Have to believe the Bible, that the world was created in six literal days, because that's what it says in Genesis 1. You have to believe you should greet each other with a holy kiss because that's what Paul writes here. You have to believe in a literal, immediate, plain reading of Scripture. And the covenant leaders said, we believe the Bible's authoritative, but it's also very important to understand it in its context. And to have the courage to say, maybe there are multiple levels of meanings here. And so the covenant was one of the first, not only, but was one of the first denominations to reject completely a liberal reading of scripture as non-authoritative, but also reject um, a, what they saw as a very superficial and reactionary new wave of fundamentalist evangelicalism. We'll talk about the implications of that in a moment. The second thing that the covenant affirms is we affirm the necessity of the new birth 
The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has, has come. And this is another reason why the covenant pushed back on being a denomination where we say, to be a part of the covenant church, this is what we believe on all these fronts. Because what they saw is people would come into those churches or be born and grow up in those churches and think, oh, if I just believe those things on the wall or if I agree with those things on the wall, I'm a Christian. And the covenanters always said, oh, absolutely not. You are not a Christian unless you are regenerated by the Spirit of God and born again. Covenanters didn't even prefer to use the term convert to Christianity or you were converted because in some circles that had the idea that, well, I used to believe these things, but then I just changed my mind and, and adopted a new belief system. And covenanters were like, that's not a terrible thing, but that's actually not what it means to become a Christian. To become a Christian is to become a person who has said to Jesus, I am acknowledging and surrendering to your lordship in my life. Forgive me of my sin. And the covenanter said, if you have not done that, like you, no one's raised as a Christian. You might have grown up in a Christian home, but we all have to come to that place where we embrace Christ personally. We have to be born again. And so they always had this emphasis of steering people away from putting their Christian identity in. Oh, I believe all this stuff. I know all the Bible teaches because I've been in Sunday school knee-high to a grasshopper. That's great. That doesn't make you saved. That doesn't make you a Christian. The covenanters were very, very strong on this, pushing people into a vibrant relationship with Jesus. And that's because in Sweden at the time, there was this state church uh, in there, not at the time, a little bit before that, uh, in the 1800s, you had Sweden. If you were a Swede, you were baptized and born Lutheran automatically, and you grew up in the Lutheran church. And the early covenanters said, yeah, they, uh, this is civic religion. This isn't Christianity. There are some people in, in the Lutheran church who are born-again Christians, but there's too many people who think that because I was born and baptized into the Lutheran church, I'm saved and I'm a Christian. And so they said, no, you have to be born again. And they started holding these incredibly subversive and soon to become illegal in the middle part of the 1800s, meetings called conventicles. And do you know what they were? They were groups, small groups of six to 10 people who would meet in people's homes to read scripture, pray quietly together, and someone would read a commentary from Martin Luther on one of the scripture verses. And they were outlawed and banned by the Swedish state church. Because it was thought, this is a very dangerous thing to encourage people to be under the teaching of non-ordained, state-sanctioned ministers. This could go off the rails really, really easily. So some people were threatened uh, with jail time who would participate in these conventicles. We would just call them today a small group. But the covenanters were some of the earliest people to embrace this model as a way of saying, no, the Bible is meant to be in the hands of people. We do need um, learned, gifted people but we, uh, to teach us the Bible, but, but we don't think that the only learned people who can teach us the Bible are ministers. God has given different gifts to all these people. And the conventicles were there a lot of people found faith for the first time in the conventicles because those are the places where they got outside of the state civic religion and then people were confronted with the message like, have you been born again? Like, have you met Christ personally? Oh, like, I know the Bible. I've been told stuff about Christian. I know doctrine. I know the Luther. I know the Augsburg Confession. I could tell that to you. And that's not the same thing. We're, we're missing each other. Do you know Christ? 
Third affirmation, we affirm the commitment to the whole mission of the church. The early covenanters were known as mission friends. They were people of a shared faith who came together to practically live out the gospel. They didn't want to fall into, again, that black hole of doctrinal disputes and debating theology. They wanted to live it out. They wanted to say, what would happen if we actually ran with the teachings of Jesus and the Bible is our authority, empowered by the Spirit? Jesus has said, love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and go into all the world and make disciples. And the covenanters said, we're actually going to try and do that. We're, that's our mission. That's what we're going to do. Everything is put through that lens. We're going to be on mission towards those things. And throughout covenant history, this, this urgency, this intentionality to bring the gospel to bear um, from Japan to the Congo to Alaska to North, to North America has just played out in so many interesting, uh, amazing ways. But there's always been this urgency to connect those without Christ to the gospel. The denomination and the gathering of covenanters has never been about how big can we make this denomination? How powerful? How can we get in the power rankings? It was never that. It was like, we think that if we could leverage um, unity in getting together around these affirmations, we could really make a dent in the light of eternity for God's kingdom. The next affirmation, the covenanter said, we affirm the Christ as a fellow, sorry, we affirm the church as a fellowship of believers. They said the church, although you can understand it as an institution, you can choose to view it as an organization or simply as a building. They said the church is none of those things. The church is the grace-filled fellowship of those who have been born again by the Spirit of God and who, are, who desire to participate in the life and mission of Jesus. And the church is a family of equals. Covenanters throughout their history were very strong on Galatians 3.28, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. And this emphasis on um, the importance of fellowship of the church and unity within the church at several key crossroads in covenant history proved to be enormously controversial and, and very challenging. A lot of churches make doctrinal agreement the line in the sand. You believe these things or you're not welcome. You're, you're out. That, that's the dividing line. And the covenant said the, the line in the sand should be are you born again by the Spirit of God? And if you are, even if we disagree on things that you could have maybe differences of opinion in terms of how to apply it or understand it scripturally. Because you are born again, you are part of God's family, which means you're part of my family. You are a sister and brother. So I, we should fight to stay in unity together. And I don't get to leverage my theological preferences over and against yours and use that as a weapon because you're my brother and sister. We have to work together. And... Um, when you read the documents of some of the, the meetings of covenanters and the tone that was used, the grace that was extended to people, it was just amazing, just really remarkable. The, um, covenant had their, their periods of internal conflict. I don't want to make it sound idealized. But there was always this push to say, is this something that we should divide or split over? And if it wasn't a gospel issue, they said, then let's keep talking. Let's keep praying for each other, with each other, because this new family that God is making as the body of Christ, this is important. We have to fight for that. 
the covenant affirms a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. Again, this is very much in line with the fact that you can't do the Christian life just by believing certain things and showing up to church and going through the motions mechanically. To be a Christian and to be an effective Christian in the world, you have to be born again by the Spirit of God. You need to be empowered by the Spirit of God, hence the need for rebirth and regeneration. And we need to have a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting that after all these years and all the different things that were emerging in the late 19th century with Pentecostalism and and, um, charismaticism a little bit later in the early 20th century, the covenant just kind of kept this pretty broad. We just want to be people dependent on the Holy Spirit. We'll affirm the workings and gifts of the Holy Spirit as it's revealed in Scripture. Anything that doesn't line up with Scripture, we're going to reject. That's, That's where we stand. But we embrace the need to have Um, the anointing and leading of the Holy Spirit because we can't do the Christian life on our own. The Christian life isn't something you just kind of self-generate and muster and through through force of willpower make happen. And lastly, and maybe one of the most distinctive uh, markers that even the covenant recognized early on was that we affirm the reality of freedom in Christ because we're laying out some pretty broad... um, the, the, the sandbox is pretty broad. Bible's authoritative, depend on the Holy Spirit, um, have a passionate relationship with Jesus, get out there and be involved in his mission. That is, there's a lot of different types of Christians who could agree to that and say, yeah, that's me. And the covenant said, that's great. And we're going to be a denomination. We're going to be a place that is, if you can agree to those affirmations, as long as you're operating within the bounds of Scripture, we're going to give you our blessing. And there's going to be a place for you here. And they wanted to avoid what they saw in some of these doctrine-teaching-heavy, um, creedally-based denominations, where at their worst, they kind of produced cookie-cutter Christians. Because in some, some of these denominations, it, was, it wasn't just, this is what you need to believe as a member of this church, that got fused over time with this is also, we all kind of know this is how you should act. These are the behavioral traits you should have. This is the kind of Christian that, while we welcome everybody, of course, we wouldn't say we didn't, but if you were this kind of Christian, then you'll really find a home here. We're excited about you if you fit this mold. Because the mold, and, and inevitably what happens is once you start creating molds like this, They tend to get rigid and smaller and smaller. And the covenant said, we think diversity is a gift of God to the church. And we want to try and be a denomination that says on any given Sunday, in any given covenant church, there's going to be heart-type Christians with soul-type Christians, with mind-type Christians, with strength-type Christians who are very different in temperament and experience personality and maybe even conflict in some of their understandings of this verse or how this should work out or how do we apply this to our lives but they're unified by their love for Jesus they're unified by their commitment to be in mission for Jesus and they're unified by desire that says hey you know what you're a different you're a different expression of Christ's love to the world than me and that's okay that's not something I need to fix you don't need to become like me in order for us to have unity I can celebrate who you are and the gifts and experiences and heart and passions that make you you. There's freedom of expression within the covenant church. 
In the Covenant Church, we seek to focus on what unites us as followers of Christ rather than on what divides us. And so it's a denomination that has traditionally welcomed diversity. As long as it's within the bounds of Scripture, this is going to be a place where we want Christians to come and thrive and flourish and find their place within God's larger story. Just by virtue of the fact that you're a part of this church, we are on a path. We're walking on a path. But this morning, I'd want to put in front of you a little bit of a crossroads. And and, and maybe even a call to repentance for those of us who our disposition is to dismiss denominations or any kind of institutional, what we see as bureaucratic expression of faith. And say, maybe there's something here for us. Maybe there's an ancient path. Maybe there's wisdom. Maybe there's spirit-guided insight that we would be very foolish to dismiss and to not embrace. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it so you will find rest for your souls. And then he rebukes Israel because Israel said, no, we won't walk in it. I'll make my own path. I'll do my own thing. Let's learn from Israel's mistakes. Let's not think we know better. Let's not be a petulant teenager who just caricaturizes our parents and dismisses them and says, they have nothing to teach. There's no benefit to me being in submission to their authority. Let's have both the humility and wisdom to say, these affirmations, this denomination and what it stands for, in light of the kingdom of God and his mission, this is worth giving my life to. And then let's move forward and walk down that path together. Let's pray. God, these affirmations are things that I think everybody in this room should be able to say, I want that to be a defining feature of my life. Stir up that desire in our hearts, God. Help us to be praying those values and priorities into our hearts as individuals, into the DNA of this church, um, that as people across the globe last week and this week coming together to celebrate the covenant and what you're doing in and through it, may may we take time this week to give thanks for this denomination, for those who have come, come before us and paved the way, for current leaders within our denomination in Canada and in the States who, whose work is, is um, often unappreciated and undervalued in many ways. God, we thank you that when critical moments hit in our lives, you don't abandon us, but you invite us to seek ancient paths. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are ways to walk in you that have proven over centuries and across cultures to lead to life and flourishing within your kingdom. Thank you for today. May we leave more encouraged today to be a part of this denomination. In Jesus' name, amen.